Good morning, everyone. Happy Mother's Day to all of you mothers. I remember a long time ago, we used to have all the mothers stand up and then find out how many kids they had. And I don't know, maybe that went away because someone got offended by something. I don't know. But we haven't done it in a long time. And I'm not going to make you do that. But uh, we are certainly are grateful for our mothers. And I hope, gentlemen, that you've called your mothers this morning um, and ladies as well. And Ryan stole my joke for the morning. He did it this morning, and he did it again this afternoon. I was going to tell everybody that you all had mothers, so he stole my thunder. Uh, Anyway, God knew what he was doing when he gave motherhood to women. I'm convinced of it because, you know, being a parent now myself and looking back now, I can really appreciate my mom a lot more. Um, But definitely uh, women are much better suited for the job of being mothers uh, with, with the qualities God gave them. Um, so I've tried to help at my house, but I have four girls and, you know, I only know one hairdo, so they won't, they won't let me touch their hair. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's, that's it. That's all I got. (laughs) So I really appreciate, um, all the mothers. And before I forget, there are some flowers in the back, um, after the service, when you go out, uh, mothers, please, uh, take whatever one appeals to you and, uh, enjoy it for the day. It's a gift, um, to mothers today. Uh, today we are going to be in the book of Philippians. Um, I'm going to continue in, in that uh, series that I've been preaching through when I get up here. Um, and so we'll be in chapter 1 still. We'll finish that up today in verses 27 through 30. Um, if you're taking notes, there uh, the little thing that's in your bulletin there has the scriptures on the side. Some of them I'll be having you turn to. Some of them I'll just be reading. Um, the title of the sermon today is Engaged in Conflict. And again, it's in Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. And I will read that to start us off. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, driving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to be here today in your presence, Lord, with your word that we're able to read and uh, study and learn from. We thank you, God, for what you have to say to us. Open our hearts to hear it, Lord. Make it clear to us, Lord. Convict us where we need to be convicted. And God, I just do thank you today for mothers. Thank you for your plan and how you put it all together You gave that job to the right gender. Lord, you knew exactly what you were doing. Thank you for the godly qualities that you've given mothers. Lord, it makes it possible for them to be compassionate and loving and caring and all those things that it's more difficult for dads to be. And you put them together to make it a whole package. You're a wise God. I pray, Lord, that the mothers here today are just blessed by their families and by knowing you. 
We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, going through Philippians, uh, just to recap. Remember, this is Paul that has written this letter, and he wrote it to the Christians in Philippi, which is uh, a Roman colony. Very dangerous place to be a Christian, and I think my mic keeps cutting out, so hopefully it, it will hold up. Uh, very dangerous place to be a Christian. Um, Paul and Silas preached the gospel there to Lydia, who was down by the water with a bunch of other ladies, and these people came to be uh, saved. They were thrown in jail there for the gospel. They were mistreated for the gospel. God performed a miracle there by creating an earthquake to break their bonds. And before the jailer was about to kill himself, Paul cried out to him and said, don't do that, don't harm yourself. And that jailer was ultimately saved by the gospel. The church was established in Philippi. And Paul is now writing to them from jail again uh, in Rome. And Paul is convinced that he'll be released um, to go and see them again. That's what we talked about the last time I preached, was he was telling them how much he wanted to come and see them again. Um, and it was for their progress and joy in the faith. And Paul has a great affection for these people. He's, he, he loves them very much. He's very concerned about them in uh, their Christian walk. And so he wants to continue to teach them, even being so far away. And though they have pastors and people there to teach them from what they learned from Paul, uh, he still is a part of their life and still um, speaks to them uh, through these letters. And so having that in mind about his relationship with those people and how he feels about them, what we'll continue seeing here is that is along those lines. And he has some, some sort of deep things to talk to them about. He wants the church here to understand the truth of some things that are going on with him and his condition and his circumstances and also that those things will take place in their lives. He's giving them instructions on how they need to arrange their thinking and their responses to suffering and to conflict. And it's important for us to be aware that what Paul says in these first few verses that we'll look at today are based on the fact that there is conflict in the Christian life. He's engaged in it. And this conflict exists because of opposition to Jesus Christ. So the first thing that he talks to them about there in verse 27 in Philippians 1 is he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul says their manner of life should be worthy of the gospel of Christ. In other words, Christ has done something so kind that the act calls for a response, a response specifically in the way a Christian lives life. This is a response that is spurred on by the remembrance and the understanding of the gravity and the necessity of what Jesus Christ did. On a small scale, we sort of get it uh, in everyday life. When someone does something nice for you, you feel a sense of gratitude and a desire to do something nice for them. The greater the sacrifice, the more you feel drawn to repay that person with a kindness of your own. Many years ago, there was a movie called Saving Private Ryan. I'm sure many of you saw it. And if you recall, it's a story set in World War II, the D-Day invasion in France. The movie starts, however, in Arlington National Cemetery with an old man standing over a grave as he begins to think back about the war and his life <coughs> in it. After surviving the landing at Omaha Beach, a squad of U.S. Army Rangers are tasked with finding one soldier, and that soldier is Private Ryan, who is somewhere in France, 
fighting the Germans. They need to find him because he is the only survivor of four brothers fighting in the war. The army wanted him brought back safe so they could return him to his mother so that she didn't lose all of her sons. This squad of rangers ultimately found him and all died to save him. Near the end, the captain who led that squad, though dying, had enough life left to pull him close and to tell him in a whisper, earn this. He said, earn this. The movie ends back at the scene in the cemetery with that old man who is actually Private Ryan, who's just revisited these events in his thoughts and still standing there at the grave of the captain that spoke those words to him. You see his family in the background giving him some time, and they're obviously a multi-generational family, uh, giving us the impression that he's lived a life of, of family. His wife steps up to him, and with tears in his eyes, he says, tell me I've led a good life. Tell me I'm a good man. And, of course, his wife reassures him that he is. If you've seen the movie and if you can get through that scene without shedding a tear, I'm pretty sure you have ice in your veins. Uh, it, really, it really sets home that point. He asks those questions of his wife because those words, earn this, were ringing in his ears. He wanted to know if he had indeed lived a life worthy of the sacrifice that those soldiers made for him. We get the weight of this, the sense of gratitude, and that he never forgot why he was still alive. Though this is a picture of ultimate sacrifice, it has no value in eternity. It pales in comparison to what Jesus did for his people. Jesus' sacrifice of himself far outweighs any example that we could ever come up with. Though physically alive, mankind is spiritually dead, condemned already to eternity in hell because of his great sin against a holy God. But John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. No squad of soldiers can come and save us. We can't ever do enough good deeds or pay enough money to reverse the judgment that we have earned. It is only by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ that we're plucked out of our deserved condemnation by a loving and forgiving God. His death and resurrection accomplish all the work. Once for all, for eternal life, for those who would believe. This sacrifice is what Paul is saying to these people, is worth the people's life being lived in a particular manner. A life of, a Christ, of Christian integrity. A life where the Christian is always asking, what is God's will for my life in this situation? How am I to treat other people? God's word tells us what a worthy life looks like. Ephesians 4, 2, and 3 says, A worthy life is one lived with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And Colossians 1.9 says, A worthy life is one filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The rest of that verse, 27, says that, So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that 
you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul wants them to know that even if he's not with them, they have the truth of the gospel. He is encouraging them that living in this manner brings them together to stand firm, not wavering or moving from the truth of God's word, in one spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, and with one mind, and that is the mind of Christ. This is done together. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel is how he puts it. What does this mean to strive side by side? Well, the word strive means to make great efforts to achieve something. In this case, it is a great effort to hold on to or cling to the truth of the gospel. Not alone, but together, striving side by side. The reason Paul is concerned about them working together to hold to the truth of the gospel is because he knows it is vital to their effort in face of conflict and danger of those who would twist and pervert the gospel. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Jude. It's right before Revelation. It's like one page, front and back. No chapters, only verses. So you can miss it real easy. Uh, Jude, verses 3 and 4. Jude says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Jude wanted to write to the believers to talk to them about their mutual faith, to encourage one another in their belief in Christ, but there was a danger there. When he finds that certain people have crept into their assembly unnoticed, he has to change his encouragement to a warning. How is it possible for people to creep in to a church unnoticed and pervert the gospel? Well, unnoticed means that they didn't see it. They didn't see it coming. They didn't recognize it because it appealed to their flesh. Whatever was being said seemed good and like it was the truth. They did not recognize it as false because they did not stand firm in the truth of God's word. For us, this happens when we don't study our Bibles. They didn't have Bibles to study back then. They had the Old Testament scriptures, but... They were hearing this firsthand. These are letters to them. They had to hear the word all the time. And they were told to hold tightly to that. And so for us, we have the same message, message but it seems to me it's even more amazing when we allow it to happen because we don't study our Bibles. We have God's word right at our hands that we can study all the time. So what happens when we don't study our Bibles to know the word of God? And how will you know if a pastor or someone else is telling you the truth if you don't have anything to compare it to. There are thousands of books out there labeled Christian that put all kinds of false ideas in the minds of unprepared Christians because they don't read their Bibles and the bookstore says it's a Christian book. No one, brings false te- no one who brings false teaching is going to stand up in front of you and say, all right, everyone, I'm about to tell you a bunch of lies 
Now, now pay attention. Okay, it's the point is it's unnoticed. They creep in because it sounds good. God is not flexible. He does not change with culture or the times. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we are not to be led away by diverse and strange teachings. We sang about that this morning. Led away from what? Led away from the truth. The truth of God's word. So Paul says, whether I'm there or not, this is what I want you to hear. This is what I want to hear about you. And it will bring Paul great joy to hear from the people that he loves that they are holding firm to the gospel. That they would be linked by the truth of the gospel and fighting together to keep that unity. There are some scary things that will come your way as a Christian with the potential to break this unity. But he's saying, don't don't let it do that. In verse 28, back in Philippians, he says, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. This way they will not be frightened in anything by their opponents. In what way? By striving together, side by side, by knowing the word of God and holding tightly to it. The opponents will be there to mistreat and to mock, to imprison, and even to kill you. But by your response, they will be given a sign. Your response is different than the response they would get from unbelievers. Your response, because of your manner of life, will send them a clear message. Now, that was more real for the people in Philippi. Like I said, a a very dangerous place to be a Christian. We don't have that here so much. Paul says it will be a sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So let God take care of it. Respond as Christ responded and entrust yourself to a faithful creator. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 2 Thessalonians. It's just a few books to the right of Philippians. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 through 12. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because of our testimony to you was believed, To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Though it's in our nature to want to see justice done and to wonder why evil people seem to get everything they want and things just seem to go their way, we have no need to look for judgment on these people here. Leave that to God. That's God's job. It's His responsibility. And He will take care of it. Living in a manner worthy of the gospel enables us to do the opposite of what comes natural. It enables us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. Holding on to this kind of vengeance and unforgiveness will only lead to bitterness and more sinful responses. Let God bring judgment on that great day. Continue to entrust yourself to a faithful creator. Verse 29 in Philippians 1, Paul tells him, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. All of this is happening by design. This is how God has chosen to work. But somehow it doesn't seem right to us, does it? We have no problem with God granting us the ability to believe in Jesus Christ for eternal salvation, but the same word granted is used in relation to suffering. Paul said not only to believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. By God's grace, we are saved, and by God's grace, we are given suffering for the sake of Jesus. This doesn't make sense to us, but it makes perfect sense to God. He sees things much differently than we do, and he sees the big picture. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Peter. First Peter chapter 2, 19 through 23. Let's see what God's thinking is about this. First Peter chapter 2, 19 through 23. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So this is God's thinking. God acknowledges that this suffering is unjust, but he says it is a gracious thing. It is when we are mindful of God in the midst of it and respond accordingly. But the key there, and what that started out with, is being mindful of God. Remembering what Christ did. And we respond as Christ responded, without violence or fighting back. Christians are told to endure, to endure unjust suffering. Well, <clears throat> this is America, my friend, and I have rights. If anyone tries to mess with me because I'm a Christian, I will not tolerate it. 
We think that way in America. But God says to endure it. Christians don't have permission to respond that way. Our command is to submit ourselves and trust God with the outcome. Opposite thinking of, of what we naturally seem to have. Um, Hebrews, if you'll turn to Hebrews chapter 10. This will remind us why we need to have this kind of thinking. Hebrews chapter 10, 32 through 36. <coughs> but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done all, done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Did we catch that? We have a better possession and an abiding one. That is Jesus Christ. That is eternal life as Christians. All this stuff is temporary. All the conflict, all the suffering, everything that will come our way is temporary. We have an abiding possession. It's a better possession. Don't throw away your confidence when things are difficult. Don't imagine that God has forsaken you, but that he has graciously given you what is necessary for the strengthening of your faith and for his purposes to be accomplished. We have to change our mindset. But there's conflict. Back to Philippians, verse 30 in chapter 1. After Paul is telling them how they've, it's been granted to them to suffer for Christ, he says in verse 30, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. When Paul referred to the conflict that they saw he had, he was referring to when he first met the Philippian people and was thrown in jail for the gospel, and it's found in Acts 16. They all saw it and how he was mistreated, him and Silas, and he's reminding them of that here and reminding them that he's again in prison. He's still engaged in the conflict. We should not be shocked by conflict when we profess faith in Jesus Christ and when we preach the gospel to unbelievers. Jesus himself told us this was going to happen. And it doesn't happen with just strangers. It's very close to home. You look in uh, Luke chapter 12, flip over there. Let's see what Jesus has to say about why he came. Luke chapter 12, I'm going to read verse, verses 35 through uh, part of 37 and then jump down to 51 through 53. Starting in Luke 12, 35, it says, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast 
so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. And down to 51. Jesus says, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Why is this conflict here? It's here because of the division over belief and unbelief in Jesus Christ. If you think it's not true of today and it's just something that was happening back then, you have to look no farther than your own family to see it. Jesus said it would be this way from now on. Well, we are in the on portion of the now on. Which of our families is not affected by unbelief? This conflict is there. Christians do not and should not go searching for conflict or trying to cause it. The conflict exists because Christians love Jesus and everyone else doesn't. Merely living as a Christian conflicts with the world's ways. Some of them will actively engage Christians in conflict, but we do not need to fear this conflict. It is part of God's plan. It's a natural result of living a Christian life. 1 Thessalonians 2.2 says, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Conflict because of our faith in Christ comes because the world is opposed to Jesus Christ. If you profess to be a Christian and you never have conflict on any level, perhaps you should ask yourself, why not? This is not just a story we read in the Bible that is far off and only meant for the Philippian Christians because it was difficult to be a Christian then. These words are a description of what our lives should be marked by as Christians. Christians did then and should now stand out as peculiar in this world. Not weirdo peculiar, but but different from the world. If nobody can tell you're a Christian, there's a problem. When Paul says Christians suffer for the sake of Christ, it's not because Christ is needy or, or unbalanced in some way. It's because it is a gracious thing in his eyes that we would suffer for him. And he's calling us to this for his purposes, and for his glory. And Christ set the example himself. James 1 says in verse 2 through 4, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let the steadfastness have its full effect. If you are a Christian living 
Are you living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ? Are you engaged in the conflict? Is your life marked by humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another? Are you eager to maintain the unity of the body of Christ? We should be asking ourselves these questions. It's not just a suggestion from Paul to the Philippians. It's how God wants his children to be. We should not just be hearers of the word only, but doers also. And we're enabled to do this through what Christ did on the cross. By his example, we, ha we have the ability to do these things through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as Christians. And the best part is that it is done by the power of God through his Spirit. I don't have to rely on my own strength. And the other good thing about this is that we have each other. Be a striver with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Side by side for the faith of the gospel. Read your Bibles. Study your Bibles. Engage in the conversation. Know the word of God so you recognize the lies. And our manner of life in the conflict matters. Live it. Live the Christian life. The conflict will come. But be steadfast through it. And the steadfastness, let it have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, to the glory of our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the power of your word. We thank you for, as Christians, Lord, for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that gives us the ability to withstand everything that will come our way, the suffering, the conflict. And Lord, we know that it hits home in our families. As Christians, we have family members who are not believers. And sometimes there's great conflict because of it. And Lord, I pray that we would trust in you through that, that we would live a life worthy of the gospel that would point to Christ. We wouldn't badger them or beat them over the head with it, Lord, but we would live it. And when the conflict is there, that we would trust you, God, that if it's your will, you will open their eyes to see you. We can't make anyone be saved. We can share the gospel and we can live it. Thank you for giving us the power to do this. Thank you for knowing what we need, even when we think we don't need suffering or conflict. You know what we need for the strengthening of our faith. Lord, help us all to strive side by side together for the unity. You are a great and mighty God, gracious and merciful. I pray, Lord, today that you would convict each one here, including myself, in the areas where we need to improve and live a life worthy of the gospel. And thank you for that gospel. Thank you for Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. I have a closing song. If you'll all stand, we'll sing, and I'll be down front here if you would uh, like to pray about anything. My chains are gone. I've been set free. My God, my Savior, has ransomed me. And like a flood, 
His mercy reigns, unending love, amazing grace, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. chains are gone I've been set free my God my Savior has ransomed me and like a flood his mercy reigns unending love amazing grace thank you